space to speak your mind with Cornwall Mind for better mental health. I'm Richard and this is the February show of A Space to Speak Your Mind. If you haven't heard us before, we're a radio show and podcast about mental health made by people with lived experience in association with Cornwall Mind. We do cover subjects that some listeners may find distressing and for more information, help and support, you can visit cornwallmind.org. Thursday the 3rd of February was Time to Talk Day, a day to talk about mental health. And on the show, I'll be speaking to Dr. Sarah Jarvis about the importance of talking with your GP. Dennis Roloho Howe, founder of PsychReg, will be talking about resilience. In the last in our End of Life series, I'll be talking to Andy Langford, the Clinical Director for Cruise Bereavement Support, on why people find it hard to talk to those who've recently lost someone. And nutritionist and coach Claudia Smith will be talking about her own journey around mental health. But first, to recognise Time to Talk Day, I'd like to welcome Lisa to the show. Thanks for being here, Lisa. Thanks, Richard. It's a real pleasure and it's something I've been looking forward to for a long time. So Time to Talk Day is a day to start a conversation around mental health and breaking the stigma around the subject. And I know you'd like to share your experience with others. Absolutely. It's so important to talk about how you're feeling rather than bottling it up. It's so important for you and it's important for other people to hear it because they might not know that that you're struggling. You could put on a very, very brave face, you know, and just hide it. So for me, it's easier to talk to some people than it is others. And you'll get to feel family members perhaps might not understand it so much. And it's kind of trying to educate them, but sometimes they're quite sort of old school but I think it's just gently nudging them. I, I, I feel that with my husband and his family. They're quite pull yourself together sort of thing. But over the years, as they understand me as Lisa, they're understanding a bit more about mental health. And because it's so much more prevalent now than what it used to be. You're right. It's finding the person that you can trust, someone that you can speak to openly and someone who's not going to judge you. So whether that be a family member, whether it be a friend, whether it be someone that you don't even know, because that can help sometimes, whether it's somebody that won't prejudge you because they don't know anything about you. So really, for you, what have been your experiences in the past? It's been tough sometimes. A lot of times I've been bottling things up and finding the right people to talk to has been tough. But then sometimes there's been people that that I hardly know that I felt I could really open up to. I mean, so much has gone on in my life. I could write a book, but I've had some really good friends. And unfortunately, I've lost a couple of them, but they were so open and just hearing me, you know, and it felt so good, even though they couldn't fix me. They just heard what I was saying and I felt so comfortable talking to them. And I've got a really good friend at the moment that she's just non-judgmental. Just let me talk about how I'm feeling and, and as I said, not trying to fix me. But in the past, it's been really hard to find those sort of people. It's only as I'm getting older and understanding my own mental health. That's the thing. When you truly stay okay, I live, which most people do, everybody has something in their lives they struggle with. But on a day-to-day basis, if you struggle with your mental health, it's, it's just so important to be able to express it anyhow through writing, scribbling, drawing, talking. You have to get it out somehow. As you say, you're not asking for someone to fix you. You're really just having a conversation. So how would you say it compares for times where you haven't spoken about things to when you have just having that open conversation without even having maybe a response or without having someone, as you say, fix you? What are the differences that you've had in your feelings between those two? Oh, such a relief. I mean, before it was so in the front of my head all the time, you know, it was I don't know what to do with these feelings, desperation. There was a couple of times when I felt suicidal, but I knew that I didn't want to end my life. It was because I needed help. And especially when I was a teenager, that happened. And because my parents couldn't understand what I was going through, they just couldn't get it because their generation didn't get mental health. It was that pull yourself together thing. But As I got older and understanding my own mental health more, 
it felt so much easier. It's kind of like shedding a piece of skin like a snake. The more I try and get it out, either through talking to people that I trust or, as I said, writing it down, it's just shedding that piece of skin that doesn't serve me and having support from my doctor which I have a great doctor and counselling many years ago. I had about five years intense counselling because of what I've been through in my life. And although sometimes those things come up, they're not so much at the front of my mind. I can feel it, but then I know that it's something that happened and that moving forward and being right here in this moment now is the most important thing and to not take it all on in one go. That's why it's kind of like sharing it out a bit to people that you really trust and spaces like a space to speak your mind. Platforms like you guys and that mind are vital and you've helped me get through so much in the last couple of years, really. What were the first steps that you took? Because I think for some people now, with everything that's happened in the last two years, they don't really know the first thing to do. Everything seems to come all at once. So what would you say would be the first things from your experience to give people a step forward? What would you say would be the first thing to do? I would say acknowledge that you need help. Be kind to yourself and say, look, you know, I would say, Lisa, I need some help to, uh, to get through this. Where can I go? Well, I find personally... Um, yes, my doctor is fantastic. He will support me and he will listen to me if you've got a great doctor. Also, what helps me are listening to podcasts like this. Are there things that you've done in changing your lifestyle or doing different activities or are there other things that have helped with your mental health? Massively getting out in nature at the moment because I've not been very well and getting over COVID, I haven't been out for like three weeks. And I find that if I get out even just for a couple of minutes outside, I love going to Cardinham Woods and especially going to the beach. And I tell you, the one thing that has helped me so much mentally is going in the sea, cold water swimming. And I did that last New Year's Day. And for many years, I promised myself that I wanted to do that. And I kept putting it off each year. And, and I thought last year, right, that's it. If I don't do it now, I never will. And I always say to people, you know, if you've got a chance to do something, do it. Don't regret it. And I've never looked back and sort of I try and go once or twice a week. And it's just fantastic. I joined the Paramount Limited's New Year's Day last year, and they're fantastic. It's just a group of people. It doesn't matter what shape or size you are. We just go in the water, have a laugh, and dip and splash and whoop and yell, and, and you come out and you have a hot cup of tea or coffee and cake, and that means so much to my mental health and anything I think I've ever done. That and listening to podcasts and reaching out for help. So it's really taking one thing at a time. I think sometimes we feel that we have to do everything all at once. But if you find the one thing that you enjoy, the one thing you like, and especially if it is within a social group, whether it be just with a couple of people or with a group that you feel comfortable with, just finding that one activity or one social interaction that you look forward to in the week and that just helps you to talk to people. And maybe if you're doing an activity as well. It's not that you're talking about mental health, you're doing something constructive, you're doing something physical, you're doing something that you benefit from, both in your physical and your mental health, but also that you can have those conversations when you need to, whether it just be those normal things, the day-to-day -day life situations where you want to have a chat with someone. So just really preventing things escalating over time. Yeah, and I, uh, what I really found helped me through lockdown was, was taking part in the writing groups through Mind. And it was great. At first I thought, oh no, I'm not really a writer or a poet, but it's not all about that. It's about the connection of people that you see. And because we couldn't really go out, you find that there's no expectation. And then you find you're connecting with people. So it doesn't matter what your writing is like, you're sharing. And then you're in a space where you can share if you want to. And I got so much out of that. I think now as well, 
it can be difficult for people to be in social situations, but we do have the benefits of technology. That means you can do things that you wouldn't normally have done via your computer. So groups like yoga groups, or as you say, creative writing or arts groups or music groups. These are things that might not have been accessible to people, especially in Cornwall that live far apart from the main town centres. But you can do this now over Zoom. And I think we've had such a change over the last 18 months, two years, that people can access these services. And if you are confined to a room, to your bed, or you're not in a situation where you can travel, you can still take part in these things. Absolutely. And, you know, when I think about technology, and especially here at Cornwall, I think most people have got a mobile phone. So if they haven't got like a computer, I'm thinking of like older people perhaps, and if they've got the phone, then perhaps they can access these things by their phone or telephone. Talk to someone, give somebody a call, and there's befriending services that will just listen non-judgmentally to what you have to say. But I just want to say that you have to just accept that something's going on and ask for help. Please don't bottle it up because that will just make it much worse. And also there's other people in your life that might also be having a difficult time and reaching out to them and explaining your own situation might allow them that conversation to talk about their experience. Very much. Very, very much. You never know how much you can help somebody by just being a pair of ears and listening. So what would your message be to others who may be able to relate to what you've gone through and are finding things difficult at the moment? What would be your key message to them? I would say be kind to yourself. Don't beat yourself up. Mental health is the same as physical health, I feel, because if you haven't got good mental health, you won't have good physical health. So number one, be kind to yourself. And then I would say just write down things that perhaps you like doing things that bring you joy, things that make you smile. It could be something on telly, it could be DVDs, it could be music. Music for me is fantastic. And then just reach out for help. That's the most important thing. I just want people to know that just stop for a minute and be kind to yourself and just think that you're not alone You're not alone. There are millions and millions of people that you don't know, people that you do know that are struggling mentally, that want help, that can't express it. So just stop and be kind to yourself and just ask, ask for help. Because, you know, you can, you can have a relationship, a good relationship with your mental health. And I think I'm just in my late 40s just starting to realize that without seeing it as this heavy burden it's like okay i'm going down this road what can i do to stop thinking that way and maybe you need a diversion of music or tv or but it's not distracting it but it's not following it down that road so it drags you down you know we get this kind of fog when everything's happening as we find that there's maybe nowhere that we think we can turn but it's only when someone has experienced the same sort of things where they can kind of say well actually you know if you just take a step back if you just know that there is help there then um it does give people hope you know and i think that's why i'm so passionate about this because i've struggled for so many years with my mental health And it's only as I'm getting older that I'm understanding it. And I just hope that in schools they need to explain to children, even at young primary age, about mental health. I would love to get into that, you know, into schools. Because the earlier that we start to talk about it and how normal it is, because it's a completely normal thing. You have physical health and you have mental health. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Lisa. You're very welcome. Hi, everyone. It's Jessica Parr, one of the presenters on A Space to Speak Your Mind. Time to talk, day. Let's meet up. However you do it, start a conversation about mental health. Talk, listen, change lives in collaboration with Cornwall Mind. A Space to Speak Your Mind. So supposed to speak your mind, I'm joined by Dr. Sarah Jarvis to tell us about a new NHS mental health campaign to highlight support that is available. So Dr. Sarah Jarvis, welcome to the show. Good to be with you. 
And what is this campaign that's been launched? So this is a new NHS campaign. It's a mental health campaign which encourages anyone who's experiencing feelings of anxiety, depression, or other common mental health problems. And we know that there are a lot of them about to seek help through the NHS. We want people to recognise that feelings of anxiety, depression, and so on can affect all of us. And that if you do need help with your mental health, either you can contact your GP practice who can refer you or you can refer yourself at nhs.uk forward slash help. Now, there could be lots of different ways that that support could be offered to you. We know that it's effective, it's free, it's confidential, and it could be, for instance, in the form of one-to-one phone calls. It could be video consultations, or alternatively, there could be group work. Sometimes there's one-to-one face-to-face, and there's also digital options. And I think these digital options perhaps are things that people don't recognise and don't understand how effective they can be. I am a huge advocate as a GP of these digital options because there's no waiting times. There are self-help workbooks with therapist support. There are online courses. You can also have interactive texts and so on. And what I often find is that particularly for people who are, say, time short, time poor, or people who maybe are more tech savvy, that's often younger people, but not always, or people who perhaps don't want to talk to their work and take any time out to have a a phone, video or face-to-face consultation. They can work really well for them. And I think especially now, because of the last couple of years, we've seen many more people experiencing difficulties with their mental health and people who've not really experienced things before. So do you think it's quite timely that this campaign is being launched right now? I absolutely do. And in fact, There was some research done to look at quite how many people were struggling at the moment. What we saw was that over half the population were concerned about their mental health last year. So half of people had stress, about the same number had anxiety, nearly as many experienced low mood or depression. One in four had fear of social situations during the course of the last year. And at any one time before the pandemic, I would expect as a GP about one in 10 people in the population to be experiencing some form of depression. But at the beginning of the second lockdown in January, February last year, that figure was up above 20%. And even since the summer, it stayed pretty stable at about 17%, which is significantly higher than it was before the pandemic. And there's been a film that's been produced for this campaign based on the John Lennon song Help. I think it's great that they're using this. It's very impressive that Sony and Apple Corps have gifted the rights to the lyrics to the NHS in support of the campaign, because while everybody knows, I think, that Help, of course, was performed by the Beatles, and most people know that it was written by John Lennon, a lot of people maybe are not aware. And I would suggest you go back and think about the lyrics. Maybe you hum along to them without even thinking of them, but, you know, help me get my feet back on the ground. Help, I need someone, not just anybody. And they were written about his own personal experiences of mental health issues. We've got also some really familiar faces, some iconic members of the radio industry, of the music industry, and so on. Craig David, Tom Grennan, Laura Mvula, Nicola Roberts, Ella Henderson, Max George. They've all given their time freely in order to help other people because they all have first-hand experience of mental health issues themselves. Mental health is not just your problem. Mental health can be anybody's problem. And there's a range of therapies that are available. And I don't think people are quite aware of these things that we call talking therapies. Can you explain what those are? Absolutely. So there's a wide range of talking therapies and it could be counselling for depression. There are other therapies. Perhaps the one we know most about is CBT. But of course, guided self-help is a form of talking therapy, an online course. Although you're not technically talking, it is a form of talking therapy. Mindfulness-based therapies can help you to learn to focus on the here and now. They can be particularly helpful in keeping depression and anxiety at bay once you've recovered. And they may be combined, for instance, with cognitive behavioral therapy. Now, cognitive behavioral therapy is probably the one that we know most about, I suppose. Cognitive, the way we think about things. And cognitive therapy is helping us to understand our thoughts and challenge those negative thoughts to recognize that our thoughts, our feelings, our physical feelings, our situations and our actions are all inextricably interlinked. So what they're trying to do is to break those down into more manageable chunks to help you recognize, for instance, that 
your thoughts and you'll often get into a, a negative thought cycle where you get into this vicious spiral of thinking, oh, that person, I don't know, walked past me in the street because they didn't want to talk to me. Maybe they didn't want to talk to me because they don't like me. Maybe I'm a bad person. Nobody likes me and so on. And you can sort of sit at home and just get into this spiral. And the point about cognitive behavioral therapy is it's helping you to challenge situations like that, to understand that in that case, for instance, your thoughts are a direct response of how you're feeling. They're not necessarily logical. If you are feeling depressed, that is what you are going to think. And once you've done that, then you can start to say, okay, so I am having those thoughts because I am depressed or because I am anxious or because whatever it is, I am under stress. And therefore, I need to ask myself, is that realistic? Is that a logical response to what has just happened or to that event? Then you can go, no, it's not a logical response. Let's replace that thought with what is a more logical response. It sounds straightforward, but it does take a lot of practice. And either with online help or with help from a therapist, you will be helped to do that, but also then given homework to go home and do it yourself. And if someone's listening to this and thinking these are the kinds of things that I'd like to look into, who would be able to qualify for these services? Basically, anybody can qualify for self-referral if they are over the age of 18. If you're under 18, then you can contact your GP practice. But anybody who is over the age of 18, you don't need a formal diagnosis. You don't need to be on existing treatment or to have had treatment in the past. Just go on to nhs.uk forward slash help and you will be contacted after you've put in your referral by somebody from the service who can go through an assessment with you and work out with you what support would work best for you. As you're saying there, maybe people historically may not have wanted to visit their GP with these particular things that may be going on. So there are new ways. So really, there's different ways to access the service now, both in person or online. Absolutely. So your GP practice will be delighted to talk to you about it. But we do recognise there are certain groups who may be less likely to come forward to use the services. So it could be men, it could be over 65s, people from ethnic minorities, people from vulnerable groups. All of those may be less likely to use, quote, traditional services. So it's great that we do have this option. It has been available for some time. But we also know that two in five of the population were not aware that it was available. And I'm on a mission to reduce that number significantly. And on this month's show, we're recognising Times Talk Day. So how important is talking about our mental health? Never been more important. It's so important because so many of us have gone through so much during the course of the pandemic. We know that if there is one thing, one common theme in terms of stress, when I talk to patients, it can almost always be boiled down to one common factor. And that factor is feeling out of control or a feeling of lack of control or not having the resources, the mental resources you need to cope with the situation. When we consider how many changes we've all gone through during the pandemic, it's not remotely surprising that so many of us are struggling. And just remind us again, the website, so people can get more information on this campaign. nhs.uk forward slash help. That's fantastic. Dr. Sarah Jarvis, thank you for joining us today. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. A space to speak your mind. it's Jess again just here to let you know that on Sunday the 13th of February at 11am there's a Valentine's beach clean the meet will be at Long Rock and this is in association with Plastic Free Penzance Surface Against Sewage and Sustainable Penzance all litter pickers will be provided gloves and sanitizers, bags etc but you're welcome to bring your own stuff if you want to I find this kind of thing really valuable for my mental health. I absolutely love doing beach cleans. For one, you never know what you're going to find. It's really great and exciting. You could find some really interesting things. Two, you know, you're just getting out, getting some fresh air. Three, you're getting exercise. Four, you're beside the sea. Five, you're meeting new people. Six, you're helping the environment. The reasons to do it are endless. Hope you're able to make it. If you can't make that one, feel free to have a little look on the internet. I'm sure there's lots more Love Your Beach Cleans going on over the next few weeks. And also, don't just wait for them. Feel free to do any of your own unorganised beach cleans as well, if you feel safe and comfortable to do so. 
Thank you, guys. A space to speak your mind with Cornwall Mind for better mental health. So Claudia Smith is a nutritionist and coach specialising in mental health based on the Isles of Scilly. Good to have you on the show, Claudia. Thanks so much, Richard. Nice to be able to chat to you about this. Now, you've had your own journey around poor mental health. So can you tell me a bit about that experience? Yeah, so I'm 31 right now. I'm back in my early 20s, so I was around 21, 22. I, of course, I didn't realise that at the time, but I now look back and realise I slipped into depression for about two years. It was really, really bad depression. And actually just, you know, for anyone listening who's had that experience themselves, there is, um, my memory is really quite patchy. So there's loads of bits of that time in my life I just don't remember. It's like it's, the memory's just gone, but it was really, really bad. It's interesting that you say that, actually, because that's something I've not really thought about before. I kind of think back to my own experiences and there is things that I only get reminded of when something happens. And you're right, there are periods of time when anxiety and depression is most prevalent in your life. And it isn't really until later that you sort of go, oh, actually, I was experiencing that at the time. Well, those were the circumstances around that. So it's interesting that you say that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's when you sort of, when things make more sense, sort of in retrospect, and definitely. And sometimes, you know, my partner will say, oh, do you remember going, doing this, going that trip? And I I don't. (laughs) And was it the circumstances at the time? Was it an, an event that happened or was it just things that were going on? As most of us do find in our late teens and early 20s, just because there's so much of life that's affecting us that we do have those experiences, don't we? Whether it be through school and exams and going to university or friendship groups and other things like that. But it does tend to be a time that these things manifest themselves. Definitely, definitely. And I mean, a lot of research points to the fact that often it starts in teenage years. But for me, I had a perfectly happy upbringing, including my teenage years, not a sign of kind of mental health issues. In fact, I was often described as the one who smiles a lot and who's happy. And so then when I was in my early 20s, certainly when I was really depressed, I would look at myself in the mirror and just get so upset just at who I was seeing because it didn't reflect who I always felt I was. And I think for me at the time, I couldn't understand what was going on because nothing traumatic had happened as such. There wasn't one particular thing. Nobody had died. You know, I wasn't being bullied. I wasn't losing all hope for my future. Nothing as such had really happened that made me really think, oh, this is why, which of course, that makes it harder. If you don't know why, then those thoughts that come up when you're depressed, you know, thoughts of there's something wrong with me, like fundamentally wrong with me, that really stings and hurts because I couldn't explain it at the time. It's now where I look back and actually realize, Ah, there were a lot of things all coming together. So it wasn't just one thing. And also you're saying there about for everyone else that might be looking in, you may be feeling a certain way and you're thinking, oh my gosh, you know, everyone must be looking at me and seeing the way that I am, whether I'm anxious or feeling this depression. But as you say, for many people looking at you, they don't see these symptoms at all. And as you say, you can be that happy person as many of us are in our general daily life. But we've got all these things that are going on that we're just so worried about and we're thinking that everyone's looking at us and everyone's seeing how we're feeling when really they're not. And you're right. Those are the people that are the smiling, happy people that you wouldn't even know that these things are going on with them. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And nobody knew at the time. My partner knew because he lived with me and he saw it. And that was it. I didn't open up to someone until I was already on my way out of depression. And then that was so helpful because guess what? This, who's now quite a good friend in my life, she then told me about her own mental health struggles in the past. And that was such a healing experience, you know, to be able to share that with someone and then to be heard and to be listened to. And then for that person to tell you about their own struggles and you just really feel like, yeah, I'm not on my own. And no, nothing's really wrong with me. This is just being human. And sometimes that's hard. And especially that is the thing that when we do talk about it, especially now we're talking about Time to Talk Day, that when we have these conversations, we find that so many people around us are experiencing the same things that we are. And when we just talk about it and break that stigma, we suddenly find that actually we're all kind of in the same boat and we're all having these experiences. And that almost in itself, just having the conversation kind of neutralizes or at least lessens some of the feelings that we're having and takes on to the journey of recovery. Definitely, definitely. Mental health exists on a continuum. You're not just kind of either mentally really, really well or either really, really, really unwell. You move up and down on that continuum depending on what's going on in your life, how you're looking after yourself. 
situations that might arise completely out of your control. All these things affect us, but it's not like you're either really unwell or you're really well. And what were the steps that you took when you recognised that you were going through a difficult time to get to that recovery? You mentioned there about talking to somebody else. I don't know whether that was the initial step, but were, were there other things that you then maybe researched or spoke about or learned or did you go to see someone? Yeah, so, I mean, I was really depressed as in, you know, not being able to function well. I would lie in bed and literally for hours during the day just stare at the ceiling and do absolutely nothing. I was extremely depressed. I remember going to my GP twice, actually, and just saying, I am desperate. Like, I, I felt really desperately unhappy and not just unhappy, depressed, really, really depressed. And I couldn't function. And I was given both times a prescription for antidepressants. and I remember taking them the first time and I was really hesitant. I was nervous about side effects like a lot of people are, you know, but I remember taking it and, and I remember in that moment of swallowing the pill, I just felt a sense of relief and feeling almost immediately better, which of course isn't actually possible, you know, from a sort of chemical perspective, these things take time. But then that for me was a sign that actually what I need is hope. I need to know that I can do something myself. And so I was really worried about side effects. And again, this is one of the things where actually my memory is a little bit foggy and patchy, but I didn't take them for long because I was worried about side effects. I did. So I live on the answer silly, uh, where services are very limited. Certainly they were back then in terms of mental health support. But I remember traveling to the mainland. I was in Devon and I contacted a counselor, a private counselor, and paying her for a session or two. But unfortunately, we just didn't really click. And I now look back and think, oh, if only I had tried someone else. But for me, what ended up happening, and this is perhaps slightly unusual, it is now being talked about more and more and more, and this is what I do with my work. I stumbled about a book on nutrition because at the time, not only was I depressed, but I also couldn't sleep well. I always had eczema on my hands, so this really kind of itchy, inflammatory skin condition from my birth onwards. But when I was in my early 20s and when I was depressed, it was extremely bad and it had spread just from my hands onto my face and my arms and my legs and I also had really sharp hip pain and I was reacting to loads of foods I just noticed they would make my skin itch even more so I had loads of food reactions and I remember just thinking what on earth is happening I'm 21 22 23 I should be healthy and thriving and I couldn't really walk at times because the hip pain was so bad and then my mental health was poor I was just staring at the ceiling in bed and I'd look at my skin and of course that knocks your confidence and the things were really bad both mental health wise and physical health wise and I stumbled upon this book on nutrition and it's like a it really was it sounds cheesy but it really was a light bulb moment where I realized oh hang on this man here Patrick Holford he's quite well known in the field of nutritional therapy He's suggesting there might be a reason why not only was I depressed, but I also couldn't sleep well and my skin was inflamed and I had hip pain and I had food reactions. So when I understood that, hey, there might be a link here, what's underlying all of those things, then that gave me a sense of hope and also a sense of agency. There is something I can do here because, you know, nutrition is something we have to eat three times a day. Most of us do that three times a day, every single day. It's something we have to do. So it's something I can so easily change. And really, it was then nutrition that was the first step in my recovery journey. And it made an incredible impact. Sometimes I'm still kind of almost in shock, thinking, wow, this made such a difference. And then other things followed on. So for me, that was, I then started running. I'd never considered myself a sporty person. So it felt, you know, it felt weird in the beginning. But my mood, and I mean, the evidence is there now, and people know this anecdotally, exercising, you know, is so good for your mental health. And that's what I was feeling. So I'd really worked on my diet, which meant my skin issues reduced, my hip pain reduced when I started taking certain supplements, I started to sleep better, and then I started exercising. And just those things alone really gave me the sense of, oh my God, I can do things about my health, including my mental health. And then those things kind of, you know, we all know about downward spirals, but actually I was creating my own upward spirals and regaining hope and getting better. 
That's so interesting when you say that because that mirrors so so much of my experience as well. Because for me, I wasn't sporty at all. I didn't like sport. The experience through school was a very bad one. And as far as running, you know, the thought of having to do a cross country or anything like that was something I just dreaded. But now, very similar to you, a couple of years ago, I started running just because it was the winter months. And I, I find during the winter period, that's just not a very good time. And being down here in Cornwall, having the open spaces i got hooked and the first couple of weeks was difficult and i was only able to make it around the corner i couldn't go up hills or anything like that and it was giving myself something to do making my mind active being outdoors and then i got to enjoy it and now i run probably three or four times a week and that was my big revelation And you're so right, the exercise, and it doesn't have to be something big, and it can seem quite daunting for people when they think about doing exercise, but it can be just those small steps that give you a kind of different lookout on the world. And especially as you're saying with diet, because you're putting so much into your body, what you put into your body obviously then affects both your physical and your mental health. So yes, absolutely, those are definitely key things. And I think what you were saying there about there is that tendency at first, if you do see you know, a GP or, or someone that might at first put you into using antidepressants or some medication, I think that can be a stopgap sometimes. It can just relieve the pressure a little bit. But as you were saying there, I had the same experience. I didn't want to be taking that for long and thinking back very much the same. I wanted to come off it. And I think it allows you just a little bit of space to then reassess where you are and just give you a bit of breathing space. So yes, yeah, so it was exercise and dieting. So those were the kind of the main things that you started to sort of see benefits from doing. Yeah. So they kickstarted the journey really. And then what followed was just this huge self-development. So there were more lifestyle factors. So for example, I went on meditation retreats and learned about mindfulness and self-compassion and compassion towards other people, how to deal effectively with challenging thoughts and feelings. So that was another huge world I stepped into and I still reap the benefits today. I still use all of those skills now. So there were huge lifestyle components. And then other things like reconnecting with older friends, making new friends, changing jobs. And then I was able to completely get out of depression and like I said, I was at such a low point. So that was just incredible. And I did all of that because of the action I was taking. And that inspired me to then train as a nutritional therapist. And of course, not only has that now led to my career, but also it boosted my sense of self-worth. I was on a path. It gave me hope for the future. It inspired me day to day. What I was learning was engaging for me. So I was really, really finding the way back to myself again. I wonder, did you find, because I think for me, although I read quite a lot and I I did have advice, but at the very start, I just felt that there was almost no hope. I just couldn't see a way out. And although I had some advice and saw different people and read different things, it was only really for me, and I don't know if this is the same for you, but it was only really for me when I said, right, I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to start something. I'm going to try. It was only that initial bit, however difficult it was at that time, that started the journey. Was that the same for you? Yeah, it was similar. And I think a lot of people have to kind of hit rock bottom to then really find that strength within themselves to go, okay, no more. And I think that's why I like the start of a new year, a lot of people in January go, right, what I did last year or how I felt rather last year, I can't do this anymore. And then you, you just find that strength within you to give something a full go. I like what you're saying there about you almost assessed your whole life and if there were friendship groups that weren't right for you or you were in a situation that you weren't happy in, you then said, well, actually, I'm going to make that change myself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, maybe we're not in the sort of the typical, the conventional medical model. Maybe there's not enough emphasis on just how much we can do as individuals. Empowering people. I think people need to be empowered, particularly if you're struggling with depression, where, you know, all your thoughts are saying you're worth nothing, you know, nobody likes you, what a failure you are, there's something wrong with you. Actually, particularly in that time, we need to hear that, no, you are worthy. There's still so much ahead of you. You can get better. Let's take action together. And you mentioned there that you've used the situation now to help others. Just explain what that journey was and what you do now. Yes. Yeah, so I did my diploma in nutrition therapy. That took me three, well, four years because I had a daughter in that time as well. But um, and now currently I'm upgrading my diploma with a master's. So it's a master's in nutritional therapy. Or really, I prefer the term nutrition and lifestyle medicine because it's not just about 
what we eat, what we don't eat, but it's also about lifestyle aspect, but it's also connecting things like, so my work as I specialize now in depression, looking at what does the evidence say with regards to gut health and how that might affect our mental health or inflammation. Inflammation for some people be underlying their mental health problems, certainly in part. So it's this really, really big area. Again, it's empowering people to make changes in how they live their lives through nutrition, through exercise, through stress management, through supplements and herbs as well, improving sleep. And then what I also trained in then was coaching with a focus on positive psychology. So that's all about looking at, you know, we're so used to thinking what makes us unwell was actually we also need to spend time considering what makes you well, what makes you as an individual thrive in life, what adds meaning and purpose to your life, and then how can we have more of that in your life? So I've done that as well, or more or less based here on the Art of Silly. And I've done some counseling training, just completing that at the moment as well, the level three. And initially when I trained as a nutritional therapist, I was just kind of working with anyone and everyone because you can use it for all sorts of conditions or health problems. But really I was dissatisfied and I knew that I wanted to specialize in mental health. That's my passion. It's also my own experiences. And I know it's a really underrated tool. So I really wanted to push that more. And I had to find a lot of courage in myself to specialize in depression, but I did it and I just love it. And so I've done that for two, three years now. And I feel really, really grateful to be able to work in a field that just fills me with joy. It's challenging, but I love it. I really do. Oh, that's amazing. As you say, you're based in the art of silly, but you do offer services if people were to come to you either through your website or in contact with you. So what kind of services would you provide if someone was to get in contact with you? Yeah, so I offer Zoom consultation sessions. So they're an hour long and typically I see people every week for quite a few weeks. So it really depends on the individual. The whole point is that this is personalized to the individual. So all my clients that will suffer from depression, but really they all will have different kind of root causes. And in the beginning, we try and understand what are the possible root causes. And there's always multiple ones. What I've seen so far, I just really don't think there's only one reason why someone's depressed. And sometimes you will never fully know, right? I mean, the research still isn't exactly clear, but looking at the different factors, you know, what is your lifestyle like? What's your diet like? What are your stress levels like? Have you got meaning and purpose in your life? What was kind of your upbringing like? Have you got friendships? All kinds of things. So really looking at an individual in a very, very holistic way and then really using those lifestyle factors. So this is where the coaching comes in, you know, with those weekly sessions. What can we do in terms of your diet to support your brain function? Do we need to look at what other physical symptoms you've got? You know, say like a female client with really bad PMS or someone with really bad skin issues, as was my own case, or gut issues. So we want to address those, looking at stress management. But then a lot of work also is around getting people to value themselves more. So compassion, how do you mindfulness? I teach about those things. So yeah, it's weekly sessions I offer and people can live anywhere in the world. That's the beauty of online work these days. And we're also recognizing Times Talk Day on the show today. So how important do you think it is just to have that initial conversation with friends, family, and then obviously when the time is right to then seek other help as needed? I think it is the best thing you can do. So as long as you find someone who has good listening skills, I think it is worth gold. I really can never be overrated. It is so healing. We're social creatures. It's so healing to deeply connect with someone and to just be authentic. Something I notice in almost all of my clients is that deep desire to just express themselves as they are, to be open and honest and share how they really are. And to have someone else who holds space for that is a really, really healing experience. And then when you notice that maybe actually right now in this phase of your life at the moment, yeah, you could do with some more professional support, then I just really encourage you to go and seek it. That's something I've really learned for myself that I haven't now suffered from depression in eight or whatever years. But I'm not going to shy away from getting help in the future because don't prolong your suffering unnecessarily. And if people have been inspired by what you've said today and listening to your story there and wish to get in contact with you, is there a way they can do that? Have you got a website address? Yeah, so it's claudiasmithwellbeing.com. 
On the website, they can also find a free download, a PDF I've created with more information on my approach to depression. And I have my own podcast show. And yeah, you'll find lots of information on my website. That's great. And we'll put those notes in our podcast as well. So people can click on and find out more from you. But for now, Claudia Smith, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Richard. It's been a joy. A space to speak your mind. It's a space to speak your mind. And we're recognising Times Talk Day. And in a recent survey, almost half of UK adults feel unprepared in knowing how to support someone who has experienced the death of a loved one. And 12% have gone out of their way to avoid someone who has recently bereaved because they don't know what to say. Joining me now is Andy Langford, who's the Clinical Director for Cruise Bereavement Support. Good to have you on the show, Andy. Thank you, Richard. It's good to be here. So we're talking about end of life and why do people struggle so much to talk to those that have lost someone? Well, well, as we know, bereavement is a difficult thing to talk about and to think about. It's often painful for people. What we know at Cruise and what Co-op has found, because we're in partnership and, and Co-op have recently a fantastic piece of research that really does reveal the extent of how difficult people feel it is to talk about death and bereavement. So less than half of people, just a little less, feel unprepared to talk with someone about the death of their loved one some to the extent whereby they'd literally cross over the road in order to avoid it. But it's difficult, I think, because it affects us so personally. We'll all experience the death of someone close eventually, if we haven't already, and we will all at some point die and then leave people behind whom we love, and we would want them supported too. And so I think it affects us all on a very deep and personal level, even if sometimes we don't acknowledge or realise it. Do you think it's sometimes that we worry that we're going to say the wrong thing? So in essence, we say nothing at all. Well, absolutely. And what we want to do at Cruise and Co-op is help people work out what it is they can say that will alleviate some of that loneliness, some of that isolation, some of that pain that the person grieving often experiences. And often when people come to Cruise and ask questions like, well, actually, what can I say and what can I do? That's entirely understandable because generally people want to try and do the best by the person who they want to support. Broadly, what we would say is there isn't any wrong thing to say or perfect thing to say. What you need to do is communicate to someone that they're not alone, that you're there and available for them. And you can do that by words. You can do that in writing, in in lots of mediums. What you can also do is you can buy them a gift. You can make them a home-cooked meal. You can offer some practical support. It's anything to communicate that that person isn't alone. And how important is that support of both friends and family when someone is going through grief? It's really, really important. So most of us will need that support in some form or other when we've experienced the death of someone close. Even if it is only initially, some opportunity to have a conversation and to share memories. For other people who are finding it particularly difficult and more complicated to lead their lives, to get back to work, to look after the children, to keep a home, all of those things. That support by local people, by family, by friends is really important. It's essential. And then if you do need more support afterwards, something a bit more specialised, if things are becoming really difficult, it's important to come and seek help from organisations like Cruz or from our GP. And can you tell me about the new support that you've recently launched? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. So what Cruise and Co-op have done is we've come into partnership together because we realised through this research that people, by and large, need that support initially or need it a little bit afterwards in order to be able to talk with each other and really get some common ground over how you can support yourself and other people experiencing the bereavement. And so what this research has said that we're basing our work on is that broadly, Many people find it difficult to communicate about bereavement and ask about it and support verbally. But many people also want to help, but they're not sure how. So what we've done is we've launched lots of resources on both of our websites. There's lots of really helpful information there for people who've been bereaved or are supporting people who've experienced the death of someone close. And also there's some bite-sized videos on the co-op website, which just enable you to dip in there, find out a little bit about what to say, and also when to seek support if you find you've experienced the death of someone close yourself. These videos are literally a minute long. They're just easy to dip in and out of. And so there's some really useful resources there. What we're also doing is working in four locations throughout the UK to pilot 
some approaches around how communities and people in communities can talk with each other about bereavements. We're going to be focusing on diverse communities as well. So how do we talk about bereavement when we're from different cultures? And how do we talk across cultures at that so that we can all reach some mutual understanding about how we support each other and ourselves during bereavement? And where can people go to get this information from you? So there's two places. The information that you can obtain is on the co-op website. So that's co-op.co.uk slash grief support. That also includes the videos. And then on the cruise website, there's lots of information there, plus access to our national helpline and our web chat service. And what would be your one sort of takeaway or one thought for someone who has someone in their life that has had bereavement? What would be your one piece of advice maybe or, or information that you would say to them? No one should experience grief and suffer alone. And you're in a great position to be able to reach out and just express that you're there for them. Angie Langford, Clinical Director for Cruise Bereavement Support. Thank you so much for joining us. A space to speak your mind. And now time once again to hear from Jess. Thank you, Richard. Most people know February has been known as the month of the year for love, with Valentine's Day on February the 14th. Love is many things and can mean very different things to each and every one of us, because love is unique, just as we are. Love can take many forms for our family, friends, pets, colleagues and environment, possessions and our home. Grief is love, with nowhere to go. It's all the love you want to give, but cannot. All that unspent love gathers up in the corners of your eyes, the lump in your throat and in that hollow part of your chest. Valentine's Day may be a hard time of the year for some. If you're in a difficult relationship or if you've lost a loved one or you haven't a girl or boyfriend or many other reasons. If this is the time of year, doesn't come easy to you, practice some self-love. And if that is too difficult, try to be kind to yourself. Make yourself a nice meal or order in a lovely takeaway treat. Give yourself some rest time. Time to take it slow. Maybe go sit beside the sea beside the seaside and have a nice warming flask of hot chocolate or whatever takes your fancy. Try to think of the little things that bring you joy. You can also spread your love, maybe to someone you are really grateful for, someone who maybe has been there for you over the last year. Surprise them with a nice card or a gift or an experience day or just giving somebody your time. Another lovely way to spread some love and kindness is through payback. Some people have known of buying someone's coffee for the next person who comes into the cafe. A space to speak your mind. So we welcome to the show Dennis Rollo-Hohau, who's the founder of PsychReg. Good to have you on the show, Dennis. Thanks for having me here, Richard. And I look forward to share to your listeners my journey about founding my website called PsychReg. And hopefully your listeners could find some sort of value to what I'm going to say. Yeah, I'd love to hear. Can you tell me a little bit about your journey around mental health? When I always answer that questions, I always share about my formative years, my childhood. But I have to preface this that I don't want to sound melodramatic because I'm not really into that sort of thing. But I grew up in a snow in the Philippines. So I grew up in a place where there was no running water. There was no reliable electricity. There was no toilet. And I did not even know how it feels like to sleep on a bed until I was probably about 15 or 16. So that's kind of my childhood. But that lovely place, that slum in the Philippines, molded me into the kind of person that I am today. Resilience played a significant part in my life. And I owe that to my parents and I owe that to my teachers and a number of other people. And so resilience is the same message that I want to convey to young people. By glorious coincidence, I somehow ended up doing a master's degree here in Britain in 2013. And to cut the long story short, about 2020, I started doing my PhD in clinical psychology. And as you can imagine, my research project aims to boost the levels of resilience of young people, especially those living in developing countries. And I aim to achieve that through blogging. 
So was it really your own personal experiences that took you on that journey, would you say? Yes. Um, so basically what I'm trying to do with my work is that if you've experienced adversity, if you've experienced trauma, whether it's poverty or whether living in a dysfunctional family, it's kind of tempting, for lack of a better word, to frame yourself as a victim. I don't want to sound political, but we live in a society now that kind of encourages people to frame themselves as a victim. While there are people who are genuinely victim, I'm of the opinion that it's not a healthy way of looking at your conditions like that. And so I want to encourage young people that with the right toolkit, with the right support, you don't have to resort to victimhood, that you could actually cultivate resilience within yourself. So you have the website, so it's called Psychreg. Just explain a little bit about what that is and what people can find on there. Yes, and first I have to congratulate you, Richard, because not a lot of people would be able to pronounce Psychreg um, right straight away. So Psychreg is a digital publication that focuses on psychology, mental health, and wellness. And the reason why I name it Psychreg, because while I was doing my master's degree, I of creating a website where I showcase people who work within psychology, who work within mental health. So it was kind of directory, a registry. So it was psychology registry, hence the name. And then I received some feedback from people that they say that perhaps the platform would be more useful if I give them the chance to write an article. And so that's where the idea of Psychridge came to be. So I published a range of articles from news releases to guest posts, just anything within the, the remit of psychology and mental health. And what kind of topics have you covered most recently? What are the things to do with mental health that people might be interested in? I publish about 20 articles in a day, about 20 articles in a day. I have a small team that helps me. So on top of my mind, I recently published an article saying that COVID policies, if it comes from scientists, more people are likely to follow it rather than politicians. So it's a research from Swansea University. So those kind of articles that I publish, latest research from academics. And I also publish guest posts, you know, just to showcase the live experience of people who have mental health issues. So quite up to date, obviously, with things that are moving so fast around the world. A lot of research to do with things that are affecting people on a day-to-day basis. Exactly. So, Richard, you can think of Psychreg as a news outlet slash magazine, which has a specific focus on psychology. So you could probably think that where perhaps like the Daily Mail or the Sun or the Telegraph, but we have a specific focus. That's what Psychridge is. And you've also conducted a research project on resilience, as you were mentioning earlier. So what were your findings based on that? What did you find from that? Great question, Richard. Actually, even if you don't have a background in psychology or mental health, you have a sort of an idea what resilience is. In fact, one of the most common metaphors that we attribute to resilience is that of bouncing back. But when you dig deeper into the resilience literature, what you'll find out is that there's no consensus as to what resilience is. Some researchers would say that it's a scale, some would say that it's a process, and some would say that it's an outcome. And there are also theoretical frameworks when it comes to resilience. Some say that it has a more of a biological basis, and some say that it's more of as a result of your experience or as a result of your environment. There's no consensus to that. So I'm just leaning towards my own orientation. And I think that it's more salubrious, more healthy giving if we convey the message that resilience is actually a scale. If you frame resilience that way, then people would realize that since it's a scale, it's something that I could cultivate. It's something that I could learn. And with the right toolkit, be it you know in the form of digital media, be it in the form of some artistic endeavors or be it sports, perhaps that would help you cultivate resilience. That's interesting that you say that about whether it is something that we're born with or is something that sort of comes to us. I kind of wonder whether people that have had more experience become more resilient or is it something that sometimes I think, especially with our own mental health, when we've had experiences in the past, we build up a resilience within ourselves that we can tackle other things that come later in life, maybe. 
Yes, that's perfectly right, Richard. And there are actually scientific literatures that support what you just said. There's some experiment that when they expose rats to stress, it makes them more resilient. And you could also see that with people, those who have experienced adverse conditions at a young age, they tend to be more resilient. They tend to be more receptive of situations. I'll give you a quick example. There was a research carried out in the 1980s or late 70s by a psychologist called Jeffrey Sachs. And what Jeffrey Sachs did is he compared the mathematical ability of two groups in Brazil, one of school children and one of child street vendors. And what he found out is that child street vendors can outperform school children when it comes to computing with ratios, with percentage. And presumably that is because if you're not good with your maths, you're not going to make profits in the street. And I think that's an elegant demonstration that in spite of adverse circumstances, because you're a street vendor, that's an outcome of poverty. You, your parents were not able to send you to school. But in spite of that, you've developed skills that were actually better than children who go to school. So it's not necessarily a bad thing that at such a young age, you've experienced adverse life circumstances without sounding blowing my own trumpet. I referenced earlier with the introduction that I spent my childhood in the slum. But when I say that it shaped me the way I see the world, I mean that literally because my life here in Britain is way, way different than my childhood. So it takes a lot to disorient me. I could probably survive without heating. I could probably survive with eating just once a day because I've lived a life of poverty. I know how it is. So I remember when there was no internet for, I think, about two hours. I just try to remind myself that internet is just a luxury. In the other parts of the world, there are people who've got nothing to eat. There are people who don't have clean water. So I think experience something bad at an earlier point in your life, it allows you to put things into perspective in the future. I'm just wondering, I mean, you've, you've said about people that maybe have had a, a poor childhood that then use that as a resilience method in later life. I'm wondering whether maybe the opposite is true, that sometimes people who may have had a more affluent childhood, but then fall on harder times when you find yourself in that situation, there's something inside you that, that almost there's a base instinct that comes up to the front that allows you to cope in certain situations. Yes, there is such a thing as vicarious learning. So even though you don't have, shall we say, like a prior experience of traumatic experiences, you learn from other people who have undergone those situations that the things that you can do, let's say, for instance, those Holocaust victim, the life that they live, it's very adverse situation. And you realize that, how would I live if I was in that situation? So you kind of relate to other people. Because I'm just thinking, bringing this back to sort of mental health, you know, I think for people that are experiencing poor mental health for the first time, as opposed to someone that may have experienced it in the past, we've all had to go through this journey over the last couple of years. And we've all kind of found our own resilience for someone that is finding things may be difficult at the moment or having poor mental health, kind of what you would say as far as what their resilience might be and things that they can help themselves build up a resilience over time. Are there, are there things that you can do to actually improve your resilience? Yeah, other things that you can do to improve your resilience because there are wonderful resources now on the internet which you can benefit from in comes to cultivating your resilience. Obviously, there's mine, which is the leading mental health child in Britain. You've got fantastic resources. Also, it's good that we can learn from other people's lived experience. You know, that social media, the internet has opened a wide space where we can generate conversations and learn from each other. So I think, yes, coming to an earlier point that I said earlier, vicarious learning. So you learn from other people through their experience of how it is to experience mental health issues. And I think that's a powerful way of cultivating resilience, whether it's your first time to experience mental health issues. And we're recognising Time to Talk Day, which is a big day to sort of talk about mental health and to have those kind of shared experiences. So I'm just wondering, as a blogger yourself, 
you're obviously promoting the psychological benefits of blogging. I'm just wondering, as far as talking about mental health and blogging about it, just what those benefits are and how that supports people. So, Richard, I did a research project during my MSc about expressive writing, and that's where the idea of blogging came from. So expressive writing is something that predates the Internet. So the idea is if you allow people to express themselves through writing those traumatic experiences, it can offer them a range of psychological benefits ranging from managing their anxiety or promoting good sleep or lowering their blood pressure. So since I'm a blogger myself, I thought that, yes, expressive writing is good, but there's internet now. And I think you'll really find people keeping a traditional journal with pen and paper. We tend to publicize everything now on social media, on blogs or on TikTok. So I was just kind of modernizing what was already popularized during the 1980s. And so I came the idea of blogging. And the difference with blogging is that there's more a sense of community because the idea of keeping a journalist is more private. Whereas with blogging, you engage with other people, people can see what you've written and you can also leave comments and you can receive comments. So that's the idea that I'm working on with my research projects. I'm exploring whether it's really a viable intervention tool. So I'm working with two groups. The first group is with adolescents in the Philippines. And then the second group is young people in Malaysia. So I'm just exploring what are the factors that would contribute to making a blogging intervention successful in boosting levels of resilience. And as well as your blogging, you're also on YouTube and there's various ways that people can access the information that you've got out there. So just let people know where they can find your YouTube channel. Yeah, so it's 2022 now. So everyone's got a podcast. <laughs> About three years ago, I launched a show called DRH Show. So if they just pop that in in YouTube, DRH Show, my initials, Dennis Relo Howell, DRH Show. Um, they'll see that I'll interview a range of people, pretty much like what you're doing, Richard. So I speak to a range of people about psychology, mental health, and wellness. And on top of that, I also publish audio reads. That's where I ask writers, those people who contribute to Psychredge, if they can kindly read out the articles that they've written. And that's to help those people who've got reading difficulties. So that's why I do with my YouTube channel. What we'll do is we'll link those channels that you've just mentioned as well on our podcast and on our website so people can access those. But for now, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Richard. It's a pleasure being here on A Space to Speak Your Mind. That's all for this month. And don't forget for support and more information for better mental health. Visit the Cornwall Mind website, cornwallmind.org or call the Mind helpline during office hours on 0300 123 and you can call the Samaritans anytime for free on 116123. We look forward to you being with us next month. And don't forget you can be part of the show. Just get in contact with us on email. A space to speak your mind at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at a space to speak or like us on Facebook. A space to speak your mind with Cornwall Mind for better mental health. <laughs>